November 16th, 2020. Here we go. Let's do this, Overtimers. Welcome to my podcast. I'm David Oliver, and you are listening to Overtime with Oliver. Today, we're going to talk Casey, classic rock, and who better to do that with than Randy Rayleigh. As I predicted last week, we're in full lockdown. Why the schools just don't let the kids take all their books home Friday and go virtual until after what would be winter break is beyond me. That would buy you another couple of weeks of quarantine and get those six weeks everybody talks about leading into 2021. Elective surgeries have been suspended as hospitals near capacity. Looks like the Bartolinos on South Limburg, the only one of the four owned by the Saracenos located in the county, is leading the charge to sue Sam Page in response to the impending four-week ban on indoor dining. Keep an eye on opening this Pandora box. And, numbers are in, bettors in the state of Illinois wagered more than $285 million in October, generating $3 million in taxes. More than 92% of those bets were placed on mobile devices. 20 states now host legal wagering since the 2018 Supreme Court decision. Missouri? Tick, 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 tick. Paulina Johnson. Hey, you look good and green. Three things you should if you have not. If you are a fan of sweet meat, we've got some previous episodes you might like. JC and I sat down a while ago and had some fun. Did you know the original mascot actually had a joint in his mouth? Classic. Number two. Quick little feature on YouTube from 2012 Came Wex did on Hall of Famer Bob Hamilton. If you have already, thanks for subscribing. If you have not, now is your chance to stay in the loop on future episodes. You can also see Randy's St. Louis 7 on your YouTube channel, OT with Oliver. What was your favorite concert at Mississippi Nights? Lastly, in addition to Randy's show, Out of Topeka, you can check out his internet radio station on planetradio.us. Just go to the site, hit the Listen Now link, and look for his station. Tonight it was like fifth to the right. As expected, deep classic rock cuts. So... Randy was on Casey for 13 years ruling Afternoon Drive, and he was destined to be on Casey from a young age. What I like about Radio Lifers are the behind-the-scenes stories, their appreciation for what goes into making a good song, and their passion to share what they like in case it broadens other horizons. If Randy challenges you to a musical trivia contest, walk away. Welcome to the Overtime family, Randy Rayleigh. Go to Overtime. Overtime with Oliver, with my dad. Tell your friends. I feel like you should have a walk-up song. You know, you're you're a Kansas City Royal. You're walking up to the plate. What's your walk-up song? Well, uh, I guess um, Born to Run by Bruce Springsteen would be just about it. Um, It's the only thing I can think of about a uh, a walk-up song. I guess uh, I guess that would be maybe Metallica or something. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. hadn't thought about it. That's a good question. What would my walk-up song be? I, I would imagine it would be uh, Tramps Like Us. Maybe we were born to run. That would probably be How many times have you seen Bruce? Twenty-three times. Spent a uh, spent a ten-day uh, vacation. Oh, I guess about ten years ago. Started. Uh, I'll, I'll I'll get the order wrong, but the cities are right. It was St. Louis. Tulsa, Oklahoma City, Kansas City, Omaha, Des Moines. So each one of those shows. So that was a good vac. That was a cool vacation for me. The expensive cool. as hell, but it was cool. What album? Uh, this was uh, 2001, 2000. God, was it 2001? I think it was 2001. So whatever, probably the Rising. 
probably what it was. I've seen him twice. Here's my cool Springsteen concert story, and it makes me sound a lot cooler than I am. We saw him in Frankfurt, Germany. Wow. He was born in the USA tour. Wow. Family was on vacation. It was in one of those huge 100,000-seat football stadium, soccer stadium. Sure. And my mom nearly had a heart attack. My brother and I, we were probably ballpark this, 14, 11, 12 at the time. And we scaled up the scaffolding of where the big screen TVs were so that we were way in the back, but we were, you know, a story and a half up and could right. see over all the military people that were at that concert in Frankfurt. It was awesome. I'm waiting for somebody to get on the stage and go, you, you, get down. <laughs> all right, man, let's start from somewhere. Where'd you grow up? Uh, I grew up in a couple of different places. Uh, I grew up on a farm uh, down around Springfield, Missouri. It's a little town called Ava. Spent the first 15 years of my life down there. And then uh, my father retired, and so we moved to the Quad Cities. Uh, there are actually five cities in the Quad Cities, and the city that I grew up in got kicked out for bad behavior. Um, I grew up in East Moline, which is actually north of Moline, but we won't get into that. Um, and, uh, so I, I went from a graduating class in Ava of 68 to East Molina graduating class of 804. So that was quite the culture shock. So growing up, did you have the radio itch? Oh yeah. I've had this thing since I was about nine, eight, nine years old. I, um, uh, I fell in love with those guys on the radio who could tell a story over the 13 second intro of a song. And I, I know the effect it had it on me, you know, I was one of those kids who would, who would, on Thursday night when they would do the weekly countdown, I'd sit there with my notebook and, and, and count down the songs. And, and uh, I, I met my very first DJ, as a matter of fact, when I was about 10 years old. The guy's name was Lou Gutenberger, and uh, he was a morning guy. And I just thought he was the coolest guy in the world. And uh, that's, this, is, this is the only thing I've ever wanted to do, as far as I know. I would be in my bedroom with a little uh, cassette deck or a little reel-to-reel -reel and a microphone and, and a record. And, man, I'd, I'd do my little DJ thing. And uh, uh, it, it's crazy how things worked out. I, um, in high school, at United Township High School in East Moline, uh, my journalism teacher had, uh, had some space in his class. And uh, I made a deal with him. He was, he was a cool guy. He, uh, he was, I think, the only teacher in the in the high school that had hair longer than I did. And I can remember, uh, I can remember he would go, Rayleigh, yeah, you smell like a walking roach clip. I'm like, all right, Mr. Miller, thank you very much. So anyway, my uh, journalism teacher, Mr. Miller, uh, in between junior and senior year, uh, we made it, there was about five of us, um, and, and we decided to uh, get all the equipment. He, he would let us put together the radio station if we could find the equipment. So one guy uh, petitioned the FCC for a one-watt transmitter. The other guy got a hold of all the record companies. Uh, I went out and got all the equipment I could find, and we had another guy who could put it all together because he was kind of a whiz kid engineer. And so my, my high school radio station when I was a senior was a fully operational one-watt transmitter. The call letters were case. KSCR, which was called Keeping South Campus Ready. And uh, we had radio shows there, and uh, we broadcast into the study hall, and uh, the one-watt transmitter went into the parking lot so people could pick it up on their, on their radios. And, uh, you know, it, it's funny. My very first interview in high school, um, we, uh, uh, we wrote to all these record companies and uh, asking for product, and the only two that ever sent us any product were RCA, 
and MCA. And MCA at the time had this little known band that no one had ever heard of called uh, Leonard Skinner. And uh, they had a song on that uh, record called Freebird. And every Friday at two o'clock, we played Freebird on my high school radio station. Well, I was listening to my local station and I heard that Leonard Skinner and some band that I had never heard of called ZZ Top were coming to town. And so I, uh, I wrote the, uh, the, the record company saying, hey, I'd like to interview anybody. I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. And so he sent me back tickets and backstage passes and the name of the guy to talk to. So my very first interview in my entire life, I'm still in high school and I get to interview Ronnie Van Zandt. And uh, that was really, really cool. He was a really, really nice guy. And it really blew his mind that my high school had a radio station. You mean, you mean your high school has a radio station? It broadcasts and everything? Yeah, well, that's just damn cool. So my very first interview when I was 17 was with uh, Ronnie Van Zandt. Who knew that uh, uh, they were, and it was just for the fact that we played the song every Friday. And uh, so, yeah, I've been, uh, I've been doing this forever, man. And, and uh, you know, so this is, uh, you know, this, the past 42 years have been just uh, a, a, a real, a, a guy getting lucky and being very blessed on his, uh, on his uh, chosen line of work. You're like Cameron Cook. You know, yeah, kind of. And it's funny because, um, you know, I think Cameron Crowe is one of the more intriguing guys of, of, of my generation. And uh, just to, to watch his story, and uh, it was just great. And I, I was very wide-eyed at it because I've always had this, this wide-eyed fascination with the radio business. And um, uh, just for me to be able to do it, uh, you know, where I did it, I'm... Um, you know, I'm a very lucky guy, but uh, yeah, and it, you know, it was just a, a fluke thing that I got Ronnie Van's aunt, but uh, I, I think, I think the promoter went back and said, hey, you, go out and talk to this kid, and <laughs> that's kind of how it happened. So you're in high school, chicks mm -hmm. dig the DJs? Oh, uh, no, uh, because, <laughs> you know, <laughs> as my father said, my father said many, many years ago, he said, boy, with a face like that, you better learn how to dance, but and so no, I had one pretty uh, one pretty steady uh, girlfriend through high school. Uh, we ended up getting married, and marriage didn't last long because uh, my career kind of took over where I wanted to go, and she didn't want to go along. So anyway, um, yeah, high school was uh, my very first time on the air on on broadcast was uh, was uh, high school. Yeah, I read something that while you knew radio was your passion, you might have also thought about being a teacher. Yes, sir. I was going to be a high school uh, government social studies history teacher. Uh, was I'm still fascinated with history. I'm fascinated with political science. I'm fascinated with all that stuff, how this country has come to be where it is and all of that. But uh, yeah, I, uh, I had two paths. Well, you got to remember back where I grew up is the Quad Cities, and it was home for a lot of manufacturing, like International Harvester and John Deere and J.I. Case and Caterpillar and all that. So what Kids did when they got out of high school back then is they went to work in the shop. Uh, they went to work, you know, and in, in the foundry or whatever. And, and that's what I did too. I got out of high school. Well, I was working at the foundry while I was uh, right after I got out of high school. Uh, I got a job at John Deere Foundry and decided I didn't, I didn't want to, I didn't want to do that the rest of my life, man. The money was great, but I didn't want to do that. So I got to a point where I just kind of went. I'm not doing this, so I've got to go this way or I've got to go this way. And the way that I thought about it, you know, throughout my entire radio career, I could stop and be a teacher. 
but I didn't know throughout my teaching career if I could stop and get into radio. So I thought if I would go this way and I got into radio, then I wouldn't have to worry about this. But if I didn't get into radio and it didn't work out, I could fall back on teaching. Lucky for me, I didn't have to fall back on teaching. So yeah, I wanted to be a high school history teacher, man. Most teachers don't have a glass of wine with Bob Seeger. That's true. Uh, they don't. And that's why I chose uh, the occupation that I did. He, uh, that was one of the highlights of my life, man. That was one of the big... Well, that was one of the big nights of my life because I am a huge Bob Seger fan. I love that guy. He's a very nice guy. Uh, one of the things I was told was don't do – see, I made this mistake with Bob Gibson. Uh, I, I was in an elevator with Bob Gibson, and I did the, oh, Mr. Gibson, man, I grew up with you, blah, 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 blah. And Bob Gibson, when you do that, goes, eh, and he walks off. So the manager says, don't just whatever you do, don't talk to him about, you know, that. He said, find something else to talk about. So we were in this room, and Bob's, you know – mingling and we're mingling i got my girlfriend with me and we end up where it's bob seeger and myself and i look at him and i go how about those tigers man because i think this was the year that the tigers uh, started off 35 and 5 or something like that and he goes yeah and so we kind of settled down and got into a really nice conversation i didn't get a chance to tell him how much his music meant to me he seemed genuinely uh non-bothered which is okay you know so he did not make you feel like a number no, he did not. Uh, he did not make me feel like a number. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, it, was, yeah, it was very nice. I've been, like I said, I've been very blessed uh, to be able to do stuff like that. So, Randy, a lot of the people listening right now know you from Casey. Let's not forget that prior to Casey, I mean, you paid your dues. Moline, Kansas City, then Casey in 85. How did that come about? Well, it's... Uh, it's a very interesting story. Uh, it is called uh, kismet, serendipity, whatever you want to call it. Um, I was the afternoon drive guy at Kansas at a station called KY 102 in Kansas City, kind of like their Casey. And my life was really, really good. Uh, we got a competitor uh, called uh, KKCI, and they came on in this uh, in the spring of 1982 with a with a commercial free summer 106 days of no commercials are you shitting me wow well the general manager of that radio station happened to be a guy by the name of john beck Perfect. and so john and i over the next couple of years uh, got into some real pissing matches on the air because he was the general manager of my competition and i did not like that at all and so i called him every name in a book on the air and there was a newspaper article about I, I was spewing venom and blah 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 and blah 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 anyway Come about 1984, we had vanquished the uh, uh, the predators. We had taken them. They had changed format. Well, John Beck, who's the general manager of 106.5 KKCI, gets hired as the general manager of KC95. Now, I am not from St. Louis, but I have had relatives that have lived in St. Louis all of my life. I have been listening to KC95 since 1970, and I loved KC. As a matter of fact, when I got out of radio school, uh, we were supposed to get up in front of the class and say where we were going to be in 10 years. And I said, I'm going to be doing afternoons of Casey. And of course, everybody laughed. You know? So anyway, John Beck gets the job at Casey 95. And I write him a letter. And I just say, hey, man, um, nothing personal, blah, blah, blah. I've always wanted to work at Casey, blah, 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 blah. And I didn't hear anything from him for a year. So I kind of put that on, you know on the shelf and all of that. About a year later, I get a call uh, from John Beck. And he says, hey, he says, we'll let you know I've been thinking about you and we're, we're, we're thinking about doing something here at Casey. Do you have anything current that you could send me? 
I'm like, yeah. So I sent him a tape, didn't hear from him for a while. And about uh, three months later, I get a phone call from Rick Bayless. And uh, Rick Bayless says, hey, uh, we'd like to bring you into town, um, uh, blah, blah, blah. And so I get into town. I get into St. Louis on a Sunday night. <laughs> and Rick picks me up at the airport, and he takes me to this little broken down little cinder block building. And I'm going, what the hell are we doing here? And so we get out of the car, and I realize, oh, shit, it's Casey. You know, I mean, it was a little, that little cinder block building. And so I go in there, and on a Sunday night, my morning guy, J.C. Corcoran, is preparing his shows for the rest of the week. And I'm going, wow, that's impressive that I got a morning guy here who spends his Sunday night putting together his shows for the week. And that, it really, you know, it, it really showed me a lot. And I thought, wow, that's pretty impressive, like I said, to, to work that far ahead. So I go back, and uh, I don't hear anything from him. And, and so they offer me the job. And uh, I, my life in Kansas City was awesome. It was wonderful. I was working from 3 till 6 o'clock in the afternoon. And I always had seats to the Royals game because the Royals would set aside um, a, a, a set of about, I don't know, 10 or 12 tickets for media. Well, hardly any of the media guys would go pick them up. So I had an in at the ticket office who would call me and go, hey, there are tickets left. Great, give me a couple. So in, in the summer of 1984, I must have seen 60, 65 ball games at Royal Stadium for free, and sitting three, three rows behind home plate. So I get to St. Louis in the summer of 85, and it's June. And um, uh, I got to tell you, brother, I was met with some of the most open hostility of any time in my life. The people at Casey did not like me at all. How they come? did not like me at all, because here's what had happened. Prior to that, a year before, Emmis had, had bought the radio station from New Century. Well, what happened when Emmis bought it, they modernized Casey, they shrank the playlist, and Casey became this, instead of an album rock station, it became more of a contemporary hit music station. And I think there was a lot of bitterness over that. So they bring in John Beck from Kansas City, they bring in two or three other people from Kansas City about a year before, and then a year later, they make a space for me on the air and bring me in from Kansas City. Well, all of the guys who are in St. Louis are going, hey, wait a minute. Why are you bringing a guy in from Kansas City when we've got capable people in St. Louis who can do this job? So my first uh, two months at Casey were the most brutal months. Here's what they used to do to me. Somebody would get, I'd go and I'd make my playlist and, and then somebody would see my playlist and then they would go misfile all the albums that I'm supposed to get. And so my song's running down. I can't find the record. Meanwhile, okay, I got to grab something, put it on the turntable. Well, that's not on the playlist. And so that means Rick Bayless is running down the hall going, what the hell are you playing? And when I explained to him that the album is not filed where it was supposed to be, of course, he didn't believe. They were just, they, they did some of the meanest, nastiest things to me for my first couple of months there. And then Drew Johnson and Rich Dalton, both of them at the time, pulled me aside and said, dude, just do your job. Just go in there and do your job. I don't know if we can cuss or not, but they basically said, tell them to get fucked. And so that's kind of what I did. I just went in there and focused on my job. They put cow shit on my truck handles and they did, I was driving a truck and they smeared cow shit all over my truck and they did all, it was, it was nasty. I was just really brutal. And I was like, is this how you welcome people? So I just put my head down 
focused on my show. My show was a little different when I got to St. Louis than your average KC show because I liked doing a show. I liked doing a show filled with bits and funny stuff and all of that. So the first two months I was here, it was brutal. But then it was like, all right, we're doing this. We're doing this. We're doing this. The ratings came back and I, I, I did very well. And so it was like, shut the hell up, guys. So, and you know, the entire time I was at Keishi, it was kind of always like that. They just never accepted me as one of their own, one of their family. But I was like, well, you know, I'm going to make I'm going to make myself part of the family, whether you guys like it or not. So that was my, uh, my first two months at Keishi where it was just, I had never been bullied like that in my life. I had never been bullied like that. It was, it was hard for me to take, but it was also making me more determined to do the best job I could. Randy, for our younger listeners, what's a turntable in an album? Uh, an album. Well, let's see. It is a 12-inch vinyl fold of magic um, and a turntable. Well, I think you probably have to Google that. That would be a good definition for that. It's the thing that plays those 12-inch vinyl things. How many CDs are over your left shoulder? Uh, let's see, um, about 3,400. Um, I've been a music collector all my life. I started with albums and then I got so many albums that I just couldn't move them anymore. And so I took, the, I took about 3,400 albums to a record store in Kansas City and a friend of mine sold them on consignment. But uh, I've been, I just collect music. I always have, I've got some pretty rare stuff there. A lot of mobile fidelity sound lab stuff and and it just, you know, music's my thing, man. Always has been. Two-part question. What was the first CD you ever heard? Uh, the first CD I ever heard. Um, let's see. I was walking into my favorite record store in Kansas City in 1982 called Capers Corner. And it was run by Ben Asner, who is the uh, brother of Ed Asner, as we know as uh, Lou Grant and, and, and all of those. And, and Ben was a crotchety old fuck, and I loved him dearly. And uh, so I walked into, I walked into this, his record store one day and I'm going, what the hell is this? And he goes, I don't know. I just I was new stuff and blah, blah, blah. And so what happened then, I said, well, I said, I'm not going to get any CDs until the Beatles come out on CD. And so what Ed, what, um, what Ben did is that he ordered me a Japanese import of Abbey Road before hmm. this was an import. And it was well before that the Beatles, uh, other stuff came out. But he found it as a Japanese import, so he ordered it for me to crotch and old fuck. So I had to go out and buy a CD player, which I think at the time was like 300 bucks. And so that was the first uh, CD I ever heard was uh, Abbey Road uh, by the Beatles. And I just sat there and went, oh, my God. So second part. What was the first one you bought, which I guess was Abbey Road. Abbey Road. Abbey Road. That's the first one I bought. And I think it was 34. I think it was 35 bucks. It was a lot of money. I remember that. So as we get ready to talk about a lot of music, full disclosure, if I was to clarify, you're probably a PhD. I probably got my GED. Yeah. But when people listen to Randy, you got to talk in depth about music. 85. I was trying to think about it in my head. Like Dire Straits, John Mellencamp. Was that uh, Dire? Uh, let's see. The, uh, the, the the albums that remind me of uh, of Casey would be uh, Sunglasses at Night by Corey Hart. Uh, we were playing a Hall and Oates tune called Adult Education. We were playing uh, Dire Straits, Money for Nothing. I think Gino Benelli had a song called Black Cars. 
Um, ZZ Top was uh, still pretty big in 1985. Um, so yeah, we didn't at the time. Casey didn't dig really deep in tracks at that time. Uh, you know, after the uh, after the uh, uh, the ownership change. Uh, Casey didn't go very very deep in, in, in a lot of things anymore, and I think that really pissed a lot of people off. And I think that was another reason why uh, I was uh, I was kind of resented by the staff. Now I never had a problem with my listeners. Oh wait a minute, the first <laughs> the first listener I ever I said hello Casey ninety five, and he goes, "You're not from around here, are you?" <laughs> so welcome to St. Louis. So yeah, that was kind of the playlist. It was really poppy at the time. I, I was actually very surprised. Uh, when I uh, when I listened to Casey in depth, because it wasn't the Casey that I remembered from the uh, from the seventies, that's for sure. What was the song you used to play every Friday to kick off the weekend? Rock and Roll Weekend by Sammy Hagar. Rock and Roll Weekend. Hey, what mm -hmm. is it about Casey and Sammy Hagar? You got a story there? Yes, um, Casey was one of the very first radio stations in America to play Sammy Hagar when he was in Montrose. Okay, mm -hmm. the very first time Sammy Hagar ever heard any of his music was on KC95, and this was back in 1973. Apparently, he was on tour, and the very first time he ever heard a Montrose song on the radio was KC95, and I think they've both been very uh, diligent about keeping that connection tight. I can tell you that Sammy Hagar is one of the nicest, decentest guys that I've ever met in my life. He's actually, when you see Sammy, that's the way he is. He has the whitest teeth of any person on the earth. They shine. They're so white. Because I remember standing Hampton tour when right. MTV still played music. The concert yep. they shot was at the Checkerdale. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. No, Sammy's got a very special relationship with Casey, and, and, and of course, the, the relationship that Casey has with Sammy's the type of guy that he doesn't forget stuff like that. You know, he doesn't forget stuff like that. And, and so it's been good for both of them, actually. And, and uh, like I said, he's just the greatest guy in the world, man. He's just so down to earth. All right, let's go to school. My opinion, last great American rock and roll band, the Black Crows. Agree or disagree? Foo Fighters. Foo Fighters. Well, fair enough. I like that. I think Dave Grohl has reached McCarthy-like status for this particular time. Uh, Dave Grohl is look, looks like he's like the spokesperson for rock and roll now. And I think his career is absolutely, uh, you know, drummer for Nirvana. Okay, and then he reinvents himself and comes out as a, as, as this guy who just seems to have his fingers with everything. But I'll say right now that the Foo Fighters are the last great American man. And doesn't he seem like he just has a ball living his life? Oh, you, have you seen the thing he did with his 10-year-old 10 10 year drummer? He does like, it like almost every concert. Uh, you know, and, and it's like, uh, that's what, you know, and that's the thing that rock and roll has needed. They've needed somebody like that. They needed an ambassador. Dave Grohl is the ambassador of rock and roll right now. Allman Brothers, favorite tune? uh blue sky or melissa um yeah it's hard don't 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 do me the favorite stuff because I, I i can't do that i'll put my top three here in memory of elizabeth reed blue sky melissa anybody better than Dwayne? oh i think better oh man here we go um i think that there are people who um have reached the status of Dwayne that maybe people haven't heard about uh, better than Dwayne, hard to say, um, and it's just hard to hard to think about where this guy would have gone uh, if he hadn't lost his life. 
Um, I'm a big Dave Mason fan, uh, Lee Rittenauer. Um, there are guys that I listen to that you probably have never heard. Larry Carlton, I think, is one of the greatest guitar players alive. Uh, Gary Moore. Um, I'll just, you know, I'll just say that uh, Dwayne Allman is certainly in my top five. I saw Dave Mason like three years ago. He's still got it. Oh, Dave's still got it. Yeah, I think Dave's got it more than he had it before. Uh, Dave Mason is one of my... Uh, Man, uh, top, gosh, you know, you, hard, you, you say top five, and there's usually about seven of them, but Dave Mason is, uh, is, is right up there, man. You know, I, I go Beatles, Bruce Springsteen, uh, Dave Mason, Dylan, and then there's just this, you know, Allman Brothers and a Blue Oyster Cult, and it just, okay, well, how about this person? How about that person? But, you know, Dave's always been, Dave's always been right up there as far as I'm concerned. Not fair to Mason, but when I think Mason, I think Joe Cocker. Yeah, that's too bad, but Dave Mason certainly made a lot of money on that song, didn't he? <laughs> Everybody and their brother's done that song, and uh, and all that money goes right back to Dave. So Dave's, Dave's done all right with that song. Most underrated Leonard Skinner song? Uh, I Never Dreamed. Street Survivors. To me, Street Survivors were their, was their masterpiece. Dude, that, I don't go deep cut. I know that one thanks to my uncles. The one song my uncles always gave me appreciation to was uh, Legend of Curtis Love. No, oh, that's a great one. Uh, I Want You from, uh, or I Need You from the second album. I think that first album, when you talk about debut albums, uh, top five debut albums from rock and roll band, you got to put that one up there. Uh, incredible piece of work. I, the thing about Skinner in the mid-70s, they got really sloppy. They were drunk, and they didn't care, and nothing fancy is a piece of shit. Um, give me back my bullets. No, but boy, it's funny how, and it's just funny how things work out. Um, you know, a couple of them almost lost their lives and that's the song that smell. That's where they come the smell of death around you. And Ronnie Van Zandt from, from everything I heard, Ronnie Van Zandt called a team meeting and said, this shit's got to stop. Quit drinking, quit doing drugs. Let's start working out. Let's start living our lives and let's see how we see how well we can do this music sober. And Street Survivors is the uh, is the um, is is the finality of that, and it's just so bad that three days later, after the three days after the album's released, is when the plane went down, and it's just too bad that to me that's just uh, they were never better than Street Survivors. I could never turn off "Call Me the Breeze." You know, it, it's just great. It's just great music. I mean, there's a reason. You know, um, they to me were full when they were on. Uh, when they were on, I, I remember when I interviewed Ronnie Van Zandt, I asked him why he why, why he came out on stage barefoot, and he said, I want to feel the stage burn. And boy, they could, man. When they were a team for Texas, and uh, all, when they were on, boy, I, they're, in, uh, they're in my top five greatest American bands ever. So, Oh, let's do that now. All right, so top okay. five American bands. Creedence Clearwater Revival. Let's go with the Allman Brothers. Let's go with Leonard Skinner. I'm going to go with Chicago. Ooh. And I'm going to go with ZZ Top. Okay, so Devil's Advocate, by the way, like the list. No Beach Boys. Um, I would put them right in position number six or seven. And the Beach Boys, um, I had a brother who was eight years older than me. And so um, right around uh, 1959, 1960, my brother was 12, 13 years old. So I had Beach Boys in my – see, it, it started with me with the Beach Boys, and then it went to the Beatles. So I can put the Beach Boys up there, but I'm thinking since then, 
all of these other bands have made such an I think Creedence Clearwater Revival is the greatest American rock and roll rock and roll band ever. I think they are. Look what they did, man. In the span of three years, they come up with six albums. Really? Wow. That's incredible. And if uh, John Fogarty hadn't been such a dick, <laughs> never mind. Another band that's in a lot of people's top five, Van Halen, recently lost Eddie. You have a couple good stories. The one thing I heard you talk about was he never got paid for Beat It. Never got paid, never got credited for it. And he did it in 20 minutes. He did two takes of it, and that was it. See you later, bye. And never got paid for it. And he never, if you'll notice on Thriller, his name's not on. Uh, his name's not on the record and nothing. He, this was, you know, this is the kind of guy Eddie Van Halen was. I never got a chance to meet him. Um, I've heard from everybody that I've talked to that he's just, you know, one of the more humble, um, aw shucks kind of guy. Um, but man, you want to talk about a guy who was obsessed with making song, making strange songs, uh, strange sounds out of that guitar. And that dude was, uh, that dude was it. That was, dude was it, man. He really was. And he took Clapton albums and slowed them down. Slowed them down. He played it. It was on 33, and he he slowed them down to 16 to find out what he was playing. And uh, you know, it's like, hey, you got to do what you got to do. I used to do that a lot, man. I used to record DJs off the air. And I would listen to them and see what they do and their cadence and uh, and all that stuff. And uh, so, you know, you've got to study. You've got to continually study and you've got to continually improve yourself. And the thing about Eddie was that he was so obsessed with it that I think it cost him a, you know, a few relationships along the way. Happens to the best of us. Yeah. Oh, no doubt. <laughs> Rolling Stones, favorite song? Uh, gosh, it's got to be... Brown Sugar, I think, is one of the greatest. I think Brown Sugar may be the second greatest rock and roll song in the history of Top 40 Radio. I will also put uh, Can't You Hear Me Knocking. That's uh, mine. I will, also, I will also put Time Waits for No One as my three top Rolling Stones. What's the number one song other than Brown Sugar? Stay With Me by the Faces, man. Good for I'll you. Tell you, uh, tell you what, man. You know, that thing... That thing would come on AM radio and you'd hear that and it'd be like, oh my God, it would just blow out of those AM radio speakers. And it had such a great intro to talk over. Uh, I think uh, Stay With Me by Faces is, is got to be one of the greatest rock and roll songs ever and, and Brown Sugar's up there too. I saw Rod Stewart at the Checker Dome and it was like a three hour show and it was chronological, right? He started from the oldest to the most recent. Right. The first hour was awesome. <laughs> I had the best time. I, I think at inter, I think at intermission I'd probably leave. <laughs> anything after um, uh, what is it? Uh, anything after uh, uh, Footloose and Fancy Free. Right. Anything after that? Um, no thanks. So I'm 51. I grew up on Casey. Grew yep. up on 2112. Yep. What was it about Rush and the intellectual side and what they were doing that almost now is a parody. Well, here's the thing about Rush. Rush appealed to the geeks. Rush appealed to the nerds. Rush appealed to the cast out. You know, when I was on the radio in 1982, I could just feel, and I'd play subdivisions by Rush, I could just literally feel all of those radios being turned up by all of the nerds listening to me because they spoke their language. Well, now all of those nerds are now uh, company presidents and, and all of that. And the thing that I'll say about uh, uh, Getty and Alex is the thing that I noticed about them is that they will stand for hours. And you know, after doing that for 40 years, you get a nice little data bank of 
of loyal fans. Because what happens, and it's kind of like what happens on the radio. Okay, say a guy comes and meets Randy Raven, or a guy goes and meets Smash or whatever. And you talk to him, and, and you're nice to him, and, and blah, blah, blah. Well, that guy is going to go tell all of his friends that he met Randy Rayleigh, and he's a really cool guy. Well, those friends are going to tell their friends that, hey, I hear Randy Rayleigh's a really cool guy. Well, that's the same thing that happened with Rush, because these guys go, oh, man, I met Alex Getty. Wow, that's really, really cool. Hey, I know a friend of mine that met you know, And it's just, and it's a ripple effect. And I think after you do that for four years in concert, you have really got yourself a nice database, database of uh, really, really uh, 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 rabid fans. And the, the Rush fans are, are the most loyal fans of, uh, of any fans I've ever seen. Pert or Copeland? Pert or Copeland? Hmm. Wow. Dude. I got to go with Pert. Just for the fact that he wrote all of those words now, as drumming technique, man, Stuart Copeland is—he does. Stuart Copeland does stuff that you physically cannot do. Um, Neil Peart does stuff that you physically cannot do, and you have to be wired a certain way, and you've got to be built a certain way to be able to do that. Keith Moon did stuff that nobody has been able to do. And those guys are, are the guys who are wired that way. You know what I mean? And, and, and they found what they wanted to do and they became obsessed with it. And uh, I got to give, you know, I got to give a slight edge to Neil just for the lyrics that he wrote. Moon or Bonham? You know, as much as I love uh, John Bonham and just as much as he was a force for Led Zeppelin, I got to go with Keith Moon because Keith Moon could do things Here's what Keith Moon could do. He could play 3-4 time over here and 6-8 time over here and 3-4 time with his left foot and 4-4 time with his right foot. Uh, I'm out. Yeah, <laughs> I'm out. Uh, sorry. I'm out. And that's the thing Keith Moon could do. And uh, uh, stupid fucker, way to go, man. I feel the same way about him as I feel about John Bonham. 48 shots of vodka? Really, dude? Come on, man. So um, I got to go with Moon. There's a new Bowie movie coming out, and I think, I don't know what it is about Bowie. Some people just think he's a lot better than I think he is, and then other people don't give him as much credit as I think he deserves. You got an opinion on Bowie? Uh, Bowie is a chameleon. He's always been a chameleon. Uh, I think David Bowie um, is uh, a genius. Um, look what he did. Uh, Bowie was not only a rock star, he was a star of culture. And uh, Bowie, you know, started wearing glitter and, you know, a lot of, a lot of kids in America started wearing glitter. And uh, Bowie kind of had a, an effect on culture like the Beatles did. Uh, when the Beatles grew their hair long, the rest of the world did too. And I think Bowie was like that. I think, and I cast no aspersions if you're a Bowie fan, um, David Bowie for a while there made records that sucked. They were awful. And uh, he found his way back with... Uh, with Let's Dance in 1983, and he made another couple of really good albums, and then he just kind of tapered off again. So, but I saw him in concert once at Starlight Theater in Kansas City, one of the best concerts I've ever seen. He was absolutely magnificent. Who have you not seen that you still want to or wish you had? Oh, the Beatles. Uh, never saw the Beatles. Um, I never saw Dan Fogelberg. I would have loved to have seen Dan Fogelberg. Um, let's see. Never saw Creedence Clearwater Revival, of course. Um, 
uh, never saw Linda Ronstadt. Would have loved to have seen Linda Ronstadt. Van Morrison? Yeah, no, I've never seen Van Morrison. I have not. And from what I hear, he's a crotchety old fuck now. And uh, I don't know if I want to see him, but I would love to have seen Van Morrison. In fact, in, in the mid-80s, there was a rumor that he was going to come to play at Starlight. And uh, that was one of those times where I was going to use my privilege if I ever had one and said, I don't care how much money it is. I want a front row seat. But it never happened. <laughs> Uh, but it was rumored, and, and the problem was is that Starlight was going to have to charge like 150 bucks a, a, a seat. Now, I'd have paid it, and I think he would have probably sold out, but whatever reason, it didn't happen. Talked about the Almond Brothers, one of my top five concerts, and one of my worst five concerts were the Almond Brothers. Yeah, I, um, I saw them when they were, I never saw them with Dwayne. Uh, I, 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 never, I never saw that. Uh, here's a, a real quick story. Uh, the Almond Brothers were touring in the early 1981, and they were just, you know, this is one of the times where they just probably should have called it quits. And and they had a concert in Kansas City scheduled the night after they had a concert in St. Louis. And so what the promoter, the same promoter in Kansas City was the same promoter in, in St. Louis. It was uh, Contemporary Productions in St. Louis and New Western Contemporary in Kansas City, but they were the same deal. And so what I was doing nights in Kansas City. So what they did was is they shipped me to St. Louis to do an interview with uh, with Dickie and Greg the night before the show in Kansas City, so I could promote it and blah 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 blah. Well, I'm back there just waiting for you know somebody to say, hey, you do something. And uh, so I, I get I, I interview Greg Allman and he's just fucked. Uh, I mean, he's just, you You know, ask, ask, ask him a question. And, rah, rah, rah. Well, about that time, Dickie Betts walks in the room, and apparently Dickie Betts was not happy about something that Greg Allman did on the stage. And so my interview at that time was abruptly ended by Dickie Betts taking a swing at Greg Allman backstage at Peel Auditorium in St. Louis. And you want to talk about the shit flying, man. That was the weirdest thing I've ever seen because Dickie was drunk and Greg was drunk. And it was a hard time separating those two dudes. So, <laughs> well, I'm sorry, contemporary and New West. I didn't get your interview, but I got a great memory. <laughs> so uh, um, I, 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 I've seen some people when they were, uh, when they were off. Uh, the time I saw the Allman Brothers Band, I think, was out at Riverport in 94. Um, it was one long song. And... The joke we had, when, it's not over yet. Keep going. It's not. A, yeah. We played um, No One Left to Run, to run anymore. Here anymore. I think right. that thing took 25 minutes. And I it was think great. you're right. I think you're right. And, uh, you know, that's a jam band. Cool. If you're into that, fine. Uh, you could probably play three or four different songs while you were soloing on that. That's cool. But, uh, yeah, um, great. Uh, it was a show, but it just seemed like it was just one long song. You know? All right, Mr. DJ, before we go back and talk a little bit more about Casey, then do a St. Louis 7. Every podcast, I know I'm going to ask one or two questions. This is one I knew I was going to ask you. Okay. What's your favorite combo of one song that immediately is followed by another song that you have to play both at the same time? I would say feeling that way in any time by journey. That's but I'm going to say, I'm going to say switching to glide and this beat goes on by the king. Nothing matters but the weekend from a Tuesday point of view. I'll say uh, feeling that way anytime. 
Yeah, as, as two songs, uh, but uh, that King song, man, it's just a, it's just a killer song. Probably be feeling that way anytime. It always that reminds me of got, summer. Uh, Heartbreaker, living, loving. Yeah, yeah, that's that. That's true too. Um, not one of my favorite Zeppelin songs. I think that uh, guitar solo in, in Heartbreaker is uh, Jimmy Page kind of getting lost a little bit. Where am I going? Uh oh. You know, he just. Uh, but hey, it's just uh, uh, long distance run around and the fish. Yes, I'll put that one in there too. All right, so let's circle back and go to Casey. You were there for 13 years. You talked about JC. It was a heritage station that had lost its way, and with everybody else contributing, JC helped bring that station back to prominence or at least relevance. I'll tell you what, um, I've had my personal differences with JC throughout the years. Um, he can be a, a difficult person. Uh, I don't know if there's anybody in the radio business I have more respect for uh, than JC Corcoran. Now, there have been times he's opened his mouth and he probably should have, shouldn't have, but I don't know a more prepared guy than JC. And, and I'll, I'll just go back to the story that when I came into the radio station on a Sunday night, there is my morning man getting ready for next week's shows. Are you kidding me? This doesn't happen. Um, uh, JC was, uh, yeah, you can say what you want. He was a Howard Stern wannabe, but he worked. And uh, there was, Casey went to the highest peak of their ratings while JC was doing mornings and I was doing afternoons. Uh, they never uh, got any higher than that, and uh, JC worked his ass off. Now, like I said, I've had problems with him. We've recently buried the hatchet after 30 years, which is great. Um, but I think it was we had two personalities, and I, you know, I, I don't want to say that I, I had an ego back then, but I'm sure I did. And I think JC, when he got there, he was the only personality at the radio station because. The other guys who had been there, you know, not, not taking anything away from them, but they didn't do, they, they just said, well, that was, this is, here's something coming up. I, JC had bits and drops and bleeps and blops and all that, and I did too. Uh, I used to do this thing where uh, Clint Eastwood as the beaver, and I would, uh, uh, you know, the Elvis tapes and all of these things that weren't music, but they were a part of my show, and JC did that very, very well. Uh, he had that uh, in his studio. He did the one-hour dirty joke. He did that. And for a while there, J.C. owned the city. Here's a real quick story. When I first got here in June of 1985, my very first event was a Santana concert at the Muni. And so I got hooked up with J.C. He was going to do stage announcements, and I'm kind of walking through the crowd with J.C., and it's everybody's like, hey, J.C., hey, J.C., hey, man, hey, man, how you doing? Hi, J.C., how you, J.C.? And I looked at him, and I said, you know, dude, I want some of that. <laughs> I ended up getting it, but uh, uh, you know, like I say, personally, um, guy can be difficult. And he really can, but uh, professionally, uh, very few are better than he is. Talk about John Beck. John Beck, always like John Beck. Um, he's a good-hearted guy. Uh, he is responsible for me getting to Casey. I was a John Beck hire. I was not a Rick Bayless hire, and. Uh, he was responsible for, uh, you know, putting together that juggernaut known as KC95. Now, in the end, uh, we had our difficulties. And uh, it, it's, it's one of those kind of things where it's, it's like a wedding. It's like a marriage where you both really, really, really work hard on it. And for whatever it can be, whatever it can be, um, things go wrong. And uh, toward the end of my tenure at KC, things went wrong. And I was offered a job at... Uh, 
to do mornings at 97 uh, FM to rock. And so I went over there and kicked Casey's ass for two years and beat him so badly that they had to buy the radio station and shut it off. Be happy to tell you about that. I say Bobby Hattrick. What do you say? Genius. Um, crazy. Uh, would, walk the, would walk the line between genius and crazy with great regularity. Uh, excellent program director. Uh, weird dude, but that's him. And if you know Bobby, you know that, that you, you just who he is. Um, but a uh, genius. Uh, great, great programmer. When you watched WKRP, did you ever think, oh, I live that? Yes. Um, uh, the, the movie FM, too. There's another, mm. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but up until the last 15 minutes, FM is a wonderful movie. And uh, it, it, it is so true. Um, here's my deal with WKRP in Cincinnati. When it was, when it was on uh, primetime, I was doing nights. I didn't get a chance to see the show much. And so when they rerun it on MeTV, uh, uh, Me I saw shows I hadn't seen before. But they got it right. Okay, now it's primetime television. There's only a certain amount of the story that you can tell on primetime television without going a little bit over the boundaries. Uh, so as far as they could get away with, they nailed it dead on. It was uh, it, it, it perfect. I asked Guy Phillips this question, uh, JC. Guy Phillips, who? <laughs> Play nice. Opinion. What's who? your promotion went bad story? Oh, God, give me a second. Um, oh, easy, easy. Okay. Summer of 1980, uh, motocross is coming to Arrowhead Stadium. Okay. And Toyota has uh, decided that uh, they're going to give me $2,000 if I jump the goalposts on a motorcycle. Okay. So I'm thinking, shoot, this is great. Two grand. So I'm out there one day and they've got the track building all day. And it's like two or three, two or three days before the promotion. It was on a Sunday. It was a motocross and all that. I think it was on a Friday or a Thursday. So I'm out there and, and uh, I'm talking to the guy. And so he's we're working up these little jumps and you know, all that. Okay. Well, I'm kind of getting this. And so we work bigger jumps and bigger jumps and bigger jumps. And I'm like, okay, I'm getting this. So we get to the point where I'm supposed to jump over the goalpost and I hit the jump. And my left hand slipped off the handlebar. And I couldn't get to it in time. And the bike landed wrong. And the bike landed and then hit in the air and then landed again. And then the third time it landed, it landed on top of me. And so I broke my wrist, um, cracked my ankle, did a number of different things. So I couldn't do the jump. And Toyota didn't even give me any money, assholes. So that was one that uh, it, it, it went pretty bad. Um, How did the one-year anniversary for that go when you did it again? Oh, no, 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 no. No, <laughs> no, no. I didn't do it again. Uh, there was one time that we had a remote um, in Kansas City on Halloween from some, I think it was Chuck E. Cheese or something like that. And the best costume got this, I don't know, big blah, 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 blah. As we're doing the, uh, the broadcast, nobody came in in a costume. Nobody. It was brutal. And it was, and we got to the point where, will somebody just please come in? To, just please come in a costume. We want to get this away. Nobody came. Nobody came. All the entire night, nobody came in costume. You had to walk up to us. You know what I mean? It wasn't one of those things where we would go just for people in costume, but you had to walk up. Nobody, right. nobody showed up. 
It was, we just went out drinking after that. <laughs> I was disappointed to hear that Alice Cooper cheats in golf. What's that? Oh, God, yes, he cheats in golf. Oh, wonderful man. Wonderful man. Uh, played with him out at St. Albans. Um, for some reason, I can't think of what it was. I think it was a winner, a uh, winner of KC something, got to play a round of golf with Alice Cooper. And I'm not a golfer. I, I couldn't hit anything straight if I wanted to. And so, so I'm kind of like the beer guy, you know. Um, and, you know, it was lovely being around. He's a wonderful man, just a wonderful man. And so he would uh, he, he'd do his little thing. He'd go, that's a five, huh? And I, no, no, that's a six. It's a six, man. And he'd do another hole. He'd go, well, I'm thinking that's a four. And I'm thinking, no, I'm thinking that's a six, man. And so it was very, uh, it, was, it, it, it was very harmless. But, yeah, he, he cheats and go. People want to hear you. Where can they hear you now, Randy? Um, actually, I uh, program two radio stations out of, uh, I call it uh, the ostentatious uh, Studio A Bedroom B. Uh, out of my spare bedroom, I program uh, a classic hits station in Topeka. And I also program a classic rock station in Topeka. And I also do afternoons on that classic rock station. It's V100. You can uh, listen at V100rocks.com. It'll set you up with all the stuff you need. Uh, if you want to go to the app store, uh, look for v, uh, KDVV and uh, pull it down there. But uh, I'm still uh, still spreading magic dust on the unsuspecting radio listeners of Topeka after all this time. The other thing, too, is you are a Facebook fiend. I mean, you put Casey's stories up there. You keep in touch with people. If we have people who are listening and on Facebook, that's a really good place to hear your thoughts and the history of things. Well, I also run, uh, I, I, I have two pages that I'm the administrator for. Uh, back in the day, Kansas City had a station called KY102, like Casey. They shut it off in 1997. And I just had a bunch of old pictures lying around here. And so I decided to put together a Facebook page, uh, the official KY102 fan, fan club and all of that. And all of a sudden now that page has 12,000 followers. So it's, uh, it, it's interesting. Uh, here's the way I look at it. You know, I'm a, I try to be a creative guy and, and I'm still a broadcaster and this is kind of the, the, the new way of doing it. Um, there are, you know, people out there for some reason want to know your thoughts on things and all of that. I think they're, you know, uh, I, I had really good ratings in Kansas City. I had really good ratings in St. Louis. Uh, and I think that there are a lot of people who who know me for that um, and all of that. It's uh, it's interesting to the people who I must have maybe 300 friend requests waiting because I just don't know any of these people. I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's very difficult for me to accept a friend request from somebody I don't know. I, uh, well, now I, I feel honored. Well, are you, did you, re did you request one? Do you remember the last time we met? I don't, sorry. No, I had forgotten it. Long story short on my end, I was selling text marketing and we met over at Duffy's to just kind of see if it made sense. Okay. All right. All right. Okay. I got it. And Randy, oh. I had forgotten too. The reason I now remember is I'm plugging in your number in my phone like a week ago. And I noticed you're already in my phone. I remember that now. And I was almost going to jump. And I think I got offered something else or, or, or something. like. I was off the air for a long time. I, I, uh, uh, I, I was working doing mornings at uh, at the Classic Rock Station in Kansas City in 2004, 
and I was the uh, number four rated uh, morning show, 2554, and I got fired. And I, I, I reached a point where it was just like, well, what the fuck am I doing this for? And, uh, it, you know, bust my ass and do what I'm supposed to do and get good ratings. And somebody comes in from out of town and fires you. So I went into, I went into the sales side of the business. I came back to St. Louis and started selling for Clear Channel. And then I started selling for KMOX. And then I got a job as a market manager in Bloomington. I was head of the ad department at a newspaper down in, uh, in uh, uh, Farmington. Uh, I was the... Uh, uh, district manager for uh, Auto Trader, and uh, I did a number of things along the sales line, and and uh, I finally got uh, kind of circled back around and found a, a place where I wanted to go to work, and it was it was just kind of weird being off the air for 12 years, but I, I kind of got it back again, and so, you know, um, it's a crazy business, man, and, uh, um, you know, I, I, I did what I could to survive. I was actually a pretty good seller. I did very well, and I had a really some really good teams that did well too. So, it, you know, you, you, you got to reinvent yourself every once in a while. But I'm, I'm back happy doing what I'm doing. You know, the funny thing about it, I made more money in 1985 than I do now, but I'm, I'm happy and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm blessed to have a job in, in, in this crazy pandemic thing that's going on. Apparently I'm in the budget for next year. <laughs> so, you know, that's, that's always good. As we get ready to wrap it up. And again, People like the podcast, feel free to subscribe. It's OT with Oliver, wherever you get it. We're going to do a St. Louis 7 that's on YouTube. You can Google our YouTube channel, OT with Oliver, to see Randy and I with St. Louis 7. I'm going to wrap it up with this one, and it's kind of a stupid question, but you're maybe the best person I can ask this question to. What is it about classic rock that makes it what it is? It is uh, It is a time machine to your soul. It is... Uh... Uh, I think we always look into the past with rose-colored glasses. I remember all of the good stuff. I don't remember much of the bad stuff. You know what I mean? I don't remember broken hearts or shit like that. I just remember when I was 16 and, uh, you know, the, the song would come on the radio. We have to remember there was no internet back then. The only way you got to hear music was over the radio and uh, through or, 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 or through your friends. Oh, oh, my God, new Led Zeppelin album. I saw in the store. Okay, we've got to go get it. And it's just a it's just a time marker uh, in your life. Uh, you know, I don't know what I was doing uh, as far as the calendar was going, but I can sure tell you what I was doing with the song that was popular on the radio. And I think that's the way with a, with a lot of people. I think uh, it's comfort food, man. I mean, get out that first Boston album and tell me how good you feel when you're listening to it. I mean, it's just you know that Boston album. I mean, you know, I have heard that thing. 70 million times in my career, but yet when I want comfort food and music, that's the first thing I drag out is that Boston album. So it's just a comfort food. Uh, I think it's like, uh, you know, fried chicken and mashed potatoes and gravy. You feel really good when you eat it. I think that's the same thing with the music is that you feel what you felt back there. And, and I think I am part of the generation and you are too, where music meant that much to us, where you lived and died on, on, on us, on a song or, or that song reminds you of a boyfriend or a girlfriend or something like that, or good times or partying with your friends. Oh, man, they, they, running with the devil. Yeah, I remember when we used to get in the car, blah, blah, blah. That's what it does. That's what it is. It's just a time machine. And another one for the books, documenting St. Louis and having a ball. We're back at it on Thursday. Thanks for subscribing and spreading the word. So, as we do. Thanks for your time this time. Till next time, so long.